morning. You turn in uh, your Bibles to the book of Mark. And we're going to be reading in chapter 2 today. Continuing on in our uh, message on the Sabbath. So Mark chapter 2, we're going to be beginning in uh, verse 23. You know, why don't we all stand for the reading of Scripture today, please? And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read that David, what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, your word makes abundantly clear that you not only love us, but that you desire us to know and experience that love in a real and personal way. We are quick to proclaim that God is love, and yet we struggle to understand the magnitude of that love on a personal level. For some reason, we are hesitant to make your love personal. And yet the embrace of a divine and intimate love is absolutely critical to our walk with you. That's why Paul prays that uh, we as believers might be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That we might know it as a certain and unwavering truth. Because only as we we grow in the understanding of your intimate love for each of us, we are able to grow in our faith and trust of you. You tell us, no matter what happens to us, 
no matter what happens in life, we are never, for one instance, separated from your love. No matter how weak we feel, we are always, always strengthened by your love. Even in times of heartbreak and sorrow, even in times of doubt or failure, your love never fails to reassure us, to comfort us, and to embrace us. So we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would work mightily in our lives, enlightening our hearts and minds to the enormity of your love for us, and that we might be strengthened to walk in a manner pleasing to the God who loves us so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Elder Wood. Good morning, church family. I'd like you to stand to your feet for the preaching of God's word. Note takers, sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, before I jump into uh, our passage and our, really our, our time here this morning, kind of part two of our rhythms of Sabbath or rhythm, rhythms of rest, I just kind of wanted to share a thought with you as we were kind of singing that last song together. Just, again, an idea that kind of popped in my head again, not a first time I've thought about this, but maybe just as a way of encouraging you. You know, when we come and we sing songs, I don't know if you ever wonder to yourself, like, why do we sing? You know, I mean, I know music is, a, is a, a, an integral part of what it almost means to be human. And so, you know, no matter what context you find yourself in, music seems to be a prevalent part of society and culture in various, you know, various ways. But, and then we come to church on a Sunday morning, we sing these songs, and it's almost like that's what you do, right? You come to church and you have to, you have to sing songs, because if you don't sing songs, it doesn't feel very church-like, or something like that. But... Um, Maybe you're also thinking to yourself, I'm singing these songs, I'm, uh, I'm declaring through my voice certain affirmations or beliefs or thoughts or ideas, and the question is, do I even really believe that? Or, I know I should believe that, but I struggle to believe that. And so I just wanted to kind of, for what it's worth, just to give a little clarity as to why we do what we do. You see, one of the values of regularly singing together, not only is music a way for us to remember, right? Music allows our minds to kind of comprehend as well as to remember. We may not remember the lyrics in and of itself, but when you add music to it, somehow our brain is able to kind of memorize it a little more effectively. But also, when we sing together, we are coming together, we're gathering as a church to remind ourselves of what is true, what is right, what we ought to believe, what our perspective can be, even if it's not in that moment what we think or what it should be. And so the very act of singing really brings you to a place of maybe unbelief to a place of renewed belief. It may bring you, it may bring you from a place of like poor or uh, um, depressive perspective into a place of like, oh God, you are good. And actually it will be okay. 
And so many different aspects of our gathering together, not only through uh, personal conversation with each other, not only through the preaching of the word, not only through prayer and, and tithing, all those things are acts of worship, but the singing isn't just because it is traditional religiosity. It is because we are reminding ourselves what is true and what is right and what is lovely and what is pure so that we might, as Paul said in Philippians 4, dwell on these things consistently. And so just a thought for what it's worth, that's free of charge. Um, you know, we're, we're continuing in our series called Spiritual Fitness, and, uh, and by that what we mean is we're talking about the spiritual practices that we believe are foundational to your godliness. Uh, these are habits that are essential to experiencing God's love for you in a more profound way. And again, these aren't just something that someone resurrected in the de- last decade or anything. These are practices, these are habits that have been time-tested from really since the age of the church when it began. And so up to this point, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. Um, if you have not been with us for the last few weeks, now you know kind of where we're jumping into. Uh, we've talked about biblical community. Last week we discussed kind of part one of rhythms of rest, and today we're going to do part two of rhythms of rest. I don't know if any of you even took the time to do this, but I kind of gave you a sort of invitational challenge. You like how I couch that? An invitational challenge to really just kind of make an honest observation about your week and just to be somewhat maybe more aware of how your time is used. It's really just kind of taking a step back, much like what we do with our budget, our finances, and you take a step back going, what do I really spend my money on versus what I think I spend my money on? This is almost, how is my time spent? And it's an opportunity for you just to kind of evaluate, not for, to, to cause or uh, to encourage any kind of guilt trip, but really to go, do I really know how my time is used? Did anybody, ever, did anybody even take the time to do that? Did you forget? That's okay. Oh, good job, Amber. Of course you did. <laughs> good job. And you do, Bethany. Good job. Okay. Thank you, you two, for jumping on that homework assignment. Well, for the rest of us in here, um, we'll have, we can always have an opportunity to kind of have a second chance on that. But, um, and I didn't bring my little clicker, so someone else can run the slides for me if that's okay with you. Um, what we learned last week and what I'm going to reemphasize for us this morning is this. The Sabbath is a gift from God to you. The Sabbath is a gift from God to you so that by it you might be renewed in him. Even as George Wood uh, read for us out of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus makes it very clear to the Pharisees that, hey, Sabbath was not, was, the man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. It was for our benefit. And we see that Sabbath, by literal definition, is really a stop day. It is a day of cessation. It's a day of rest, a day that is set apart from all other days out of the week. So there's six days out of the week that looks different than this one day called the Sabbath day. And it's a day that Matthew Sleeth kind of includes in his book that says we, go, we kind of transition from human doings to human beings. We come back into kind of our essence of who we are. And we see that this, this, this example for Sabbath, this idea of Sabbath, isn't something that was conjured up later in God's redemptive plan, but Sabbath is really a day that was exemplified. Are you going to give that to me? 
Thanks. Thanks, brother. Sabbath is a day that God uh, set as an example from the very beginning of creation. In fact, the manner in which God went about creation is that he created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. It kind of begs the question, could God have created everything in one day? Yes. Did God have to take a rest on the seventh day because he was exhausted? No. He was establishing for you and me a rhythm to live by. It's not just something that is abstract. It's not unique only to God. He was from the very beginning of creation and establishing a rhythm that you and I most, most, most effectively and in a healthy way function as image bearers of God. We see that, the, that God made sure to include this in the, 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 the law given through Moses called the Torah. It's the fourth commandment of what is traditionally known as the Ten Commandments. We see that Sabbath day, and again, I'm just going through what we talked about last week. Sabbath is essential to our spiritual well-being. We learn that holiness and rest go hand in hand. Resting long enough quiets the innermost parts of our body and our soul and our mind so that the Spirit of God can, in a sense, do spiritual heart surgery. Yet, that's also the reason why we might avoid it at all costs, right? Because when we, we move into these places of quiet and rest, and, and then all of a sudden what boils to the surface in those times of quiet and rest, what boils to the surface are the, maybe the insecurities that you've been working very diligently at to shove down and to suppress and to try to forget. It's in these times or periods of silence and rest that, uh, that all of a sudden the, the addictive habits and painful memories and hurtful encounters and relational struggles all make us very uncomfortable. So instead of quieting our hearts so these things come to the surface, we go, whoa, whoa, push those back down, and we pour another glass of wine. Or we work longer hours. Or we binge watch another couple of episodes late into the evening. We put in our earbuds and just turn on another form of noise. We add another needless item to our Amazon cart. We scroll the narcissistic realm of antisocial media. What is it for you? How do you distract yourself from the pain and discomfort that periods of rest actually bring? We'll visit, revisit this more in just a little bit so I won't get ahead of myself. But the, the, the invitation that Sabbath brings is that we might be still before God. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 46, right? Be still and know that I am God. Of course, the implication is that if I'm not still, then I can't know God as he is knowable, as he makes himself knowable. You see, stopping long enough squelches the noise that constantly surrounds us so that we can begin afresh to listen to what God has for us. Remember, one of the most effective ways that our enemy is, 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 is using against us, we talked about this last week, right? The most effective tactic of the enemy is to keep the noise loud and constant so that we are continually distracted. Richard Foster said this in his book. He says, our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. 
If he can keep us involved in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. I didn't get a chance to elaborate on this last week, but I'll just briefly include it for our time here this morning. If we fail to stop and to listen, then God may orchestrate what we call forced stops in our busy lives in order to get our attention. Wayne Mueller writes in his book on Sabbath, he says, if we do not allow rhythms of rest in our overly busy lives, then illness becomes our Sabbath. Our pneumonia, our cancer, our heart attack, our accidents create Sabbath for us. Again, the main point of this whole Sabbath theme is this, that Sabbath is a gift from God so that by it you might be renewed in him. And this morning I want to unpack some, uh, some further benefits, really some physical benefits, as well as give us some practical ways in which you and I can begin or continue to pursue this practice more effectively in our lives. You know, there's a study that came out by Dan uh, Butner. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but um, he wrote this book called The Blue Zones. Anybody heard of that book before? The Blue Zones? Yeah. The Blue Zones is it's really a, a study um, that, that looked for groups of people who lived longer and healthier lives. And you'd be, you may not be aware of this, but there are places around the world where there are groups of people, I think there's like seven or eight of them or something, is that right? Yeah. Where like, people live unusually longer than the rest of humanity, consistently, not just kind of a one-off generation kind of thing, but consistently live longer than the rest of humanity. And you kind of wonder like, oh, what's the, what's the new uh, superfood that they're eating? Or what's the, what are they doing in their life, you know? Or what's, what kind of like uh, element or, or uh, anything in their diet that they're doing? Or what, what is it about their lives that makes them live longer than everyone else? And so Dan was kind of pursuing this. And he, as, he, as he kind of took a, a summary of, about these people groups, uh, he, he noticed that they all had kind of some similarities with one another, that they ate healthy, they didn't smoke, uh, they, didn't, they did exercise regularly, etc. But there was one group that lived the longest, and that group was uh, in a place called Loma Linda, California. Now, it originally kind of shocked me because I'm like, Loma Linda, not the greatest air quality in the world. You know, it's right up against the mountains there. You're kind of like, you think people have a lot of lung issues there. But people in Loma Linda live longer, on average, almost 12 years longer than everyone else in the nation. What gives? Is it time to move to Loma Linda? (laughs) No, we live in a very beautiful spot, mind you. No, you see, Loma Linda is actually a Seventh-day Adventist community. You know the Seventh-day Adventists that take Saturdays off every single week? You see, the Seventh-day Adventist community, they, they strictly observe a Sabbath day, and on, and on average, these people live a dozen years longer than the rest of America. It gets even more interesting. If you multiply the number of Sabbaths that they keep each year uh, uh, with their average lifespan and divide that figure by 365, the result is about a dozen years. Here's what I'm getting at. The number of extra years they live is roughly the same number of days spent keeping the Sabbath. Kind of interesting. Food for thought. The point is this. You and I cannot function on a 24-7 schedule perpetually. 
Our bodies are not even able to do that effectively. And we suffer accordingly. And yet what we see all along that God has actually offered us this incredible invitation to enter his rest consistently and regularly so that by it we might be renewed in him. If we are to treat our bodies as temples, as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 6, then we must allow time for our physical and mental and spiritual recovery from the labors of the week. I love how uh, Shelley Miller writes in her book called Rhythms of Rest. I wonder where I got my title from for my sermon. Um, she says this, every breath requires exhale, right? Pretty basic biology. Every breath requires exhale, Productivity is the inhale, and Sabbath is the exhale. And without exhale, our inhale becomes weak and shallow. Have you ever done that before? Everybody breathe, Just everybody breathe in. But don't breathe out. Now breathe in again. Now breathe in again. Eventually, you can't breathe in any longer, right? <sighs> There's your Sabbath. Congratulations. The fact is, much like so many rhythms that we don't even consciously think about, God has established a rhythm of rest in our lives. Peter Drucker even speaks to this as far as executives are concerned. He says, large quantities of uninterrupted time to make executive decisions are critical for executives to do their job well. He says, effective leaders carve out these blocks of time to synthesize information, weigh tasks, and plan strategies. The point is we thrive better and more effectively when we have regular down times. I love what author Tim Kreider says. He says this, idleness is indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body. And deprived of it, we suffer a mental affliction as disfiguring as rickets. The space and quiet that idleness provides is a necessary condition for standing back from life and seeing it whole, for making unexpected connections and waiting for the wild summer lightning strikes of inspiration. It is paradoxically necessary to getting any work done. That is a mouthful. Let me just summarize what he just said. He said, idleness is necessary to getting work done. What? Idleness is necessary to getting work done. Now, of course, you have to understand it in context, right? And even Shelley Miller says, who knew that daydreaming out of your office window could be so revolutionary to your work? So if you come by my office and you see me staring out the window, please know I am not sleeping with my eyes open. There's a lot going on up here. Please trust me. And even if there's not, I'm waiting for the Lord to make a lot going on up there. So... But here's the thing, idleness isn't referring to mentally checking out, It it is referring to the intentional cessation of activity so that you can receive. I mean, have you ever noticed, for example, in a kind of a positive example, have you noticed that those times in your day or week or whatever it is where you have these kind of epiphanies, right? For me, it's in the shower in the mornings where like you're still kind of waking up and you're kind of getting going for the day, you're not 
thinking about a hundred different things, but you're like in the shower, you're like, man, I wish I had to write in the rain book right now because I had this thought that came to mind or a, a, a waterproof recorder or something that I could just kind of quickly get it down because it's in those moments of kind of, there's, there, there's a clarity that presents itself because of the simplicity of what I'm doing at that moment. Or, or windshield time on a long road trip can provide this also for you. Your mind is just, you're not doing much of anything. You're just driving. You're almost on autopilot. And then your mind starts thinking about all kinds of things. Your brain is constantly processing. Sabbath rest allows us to enter into these times of reflection so that we can process what God is teaching us, what we've heard and experienced and what we have seen. I've shared this with you before, but um, I used to work on the pipeline for a number of years. That's how I paid for school and seminary. And um, on the pipeline in Alaska, everything's seasonal up there. And so we know that you, you basically put a whole year's worth of work in a very short amount of time. And so on the job that I worked, I was working, you'd work four months straight, seven days a week, minimum 12 hours a day, but usually more. And you just go week after week after week after week. And at first you're like, yeah, we're making lots of money. This is awesome. And without fail... Without fail, by week number six or seven, if you were to look at kind of a curve, bell curve thing, productivity, crew morale, everything else began to take a very, basically fall off a very slippery slope to where we had to start repeating days, which by the way, doesn't improve crew morale. And you have to repeat all the work you did the day before because people weren't thinking as clearly. So after a number of years doing this, I came to my bosses and I was leading the crews on these, on these, going all over the place in Alaska. And I was saying, hey, when we have a moments of opportunity, even though we're out in the middle of nowhere, we're going to have to take days where we just intentionally just stop and literally do nothing. And if we're around like a river, we'll go whitewater rafting or something like that. But we have to have some days sporadically interspersed throughout. It was, an, it was a dramatic change. All of a sudden, you become like, oh, we're slipping off, boom. One day off, bounce back up again. Start slipping off one day off, bam, start bouncing back up again. It was uh, incredible. All of a sudden, because we used to have to like, let people go early because they were just not helpful. We were actually wasting money, and so we just had to let them go. But when we started in, you know, sporadically encouraging just days off of literally doing nothing and just resting, it was a night and day difference. Sometimes, like that doctor joke I shared last week, we do just need to take a nap and rest and be still before our Lord and let him restore our soul. So what works against us? Why do we struggle to proactively pursue a rhythm of rest in our week? Well, I think one reason is, uh, is the curse or the addiction of what we call busyness, you know, right? We all say this still. I don't know why, but we still do. We're, oh, we're so busy. And it was true, we are. But to our own fault, you know, it used to be like busyness was kind of a badge of honor, uh, productivity, the constant go, the planning uh, are the values of our culture, the whole FIRE acronym, you know, financially independence, retire, financial independence, retire early, uh, the prime years is the window of your, of your life, so this is the time to really just get after it, make a lot of money, and then one day you can rest. My father-in-law shared a story with me when he came back from his most recent trip in Uganda, Someone shared in this story, and I want to 
share it with you. It's called The Businessman and the Fisherman. One day, a fisherman was lying on a beautiful beach with his fishing pole propped up in the sand and his solitary line cast out into the sparkling blue surf. He was enjoying the warmth of the afternoon sun and the prospect of catching a fish. About that time, a businessman came walking down the beach trying to relieve some of the stress of his workday, and he noticed the fisherman sitting on the beach and decided to find out why this fisherman was fishing instead of working harder to make a living for himself and his family. You aren't going to catch him any fish that way, said the businessman to the fisherman. You should be working rather than lying on the beach. The fisherman looked at the businessman and smiled and replied, what will my reward be? Well, you can get bigger nets and catch more fish, was the businessman's answer. And then what will be my, what will be my reward then, asked the fisherman, still smiling. The business, businessman replied, you will make more money and you'll be able to buy a boat which will then result in larger, larger catches of fish. And then when what will be my reward be? Asked the fisherman. The businessman was beginning a little irritated with the fisherman's questions. You'll buy a bigger boat and hire some people to work for you, he said. And then what will my reward be? The business was getting angry at this point. Don't you understand? You can build a fleet of fishing boats, sail all over the world, and let all your employees catch fish for you. Then what my reward be? The businessman was red with rage and shouted at the fisherman, don't you understand that you can become so rich that you'll never have to work ever again and you can spend all the rest of your days sitting on this beach looking at the sunset? You won't have to have a care in the world. You know where I'm going with this. (laughs) The fisherman still smiling looked up and said, and what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) The fact is, sometimes we have to be honest about what our motives are. Why do we do what we do? What is really driving our, this, sometimes this insatiable appetite and, and mode or rhythm? What, what is really driving this? Well, I think one motivation that's driving our busyness is I, would, I want to just kind of label as the distraction of comparison. The, the distraction of comparison. And I think as, especially as parents, of course, as a parent right now, I, I probably feel this more uh, poignantly in my own life, but as parents, it's like, you know, sometimes you have this, like, all the parents, even though we don't like to admit it, you're all kind of comparing one another, like, oh, what is so-and-so doing? What is so-and-so doing? What sports and activities are they a part of? And you start kind of just looking around, and we're, we're all loving each other, and it's great. Oh, you know, so-and-so's doing this. Oh, that's great. So-and-so's that. And as a parent, sometimes you feel this motivation or this kind of, this, um, this pressure to go, oh, if I'm going to be a good parent, then I too have to make sure my kids have five sports and whatever else and, and a musical instrument and everything else and, and then get home at nine or 10 o'clock at night and do it all over again the next day and then be gone on the weekends. Now, again, nothing wrong with sports and extracurricular activities. I love the fact that we have so much afforded to us, sort of. And at the same time, sometimes more options aren't necessarily better. And as parents, sometimes we can kind of be motivated and, 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 we, and, we, and we start modeling, unfortunately, for our kids, the mode in life that we kind of live day in and day out is a mode or a lifestyle that rarely, if ever, that stops. 
It's a pace of life that is constantly on the go. And then you finally crash and you need a vacation, right? And then you go on vacation, but because you really don't know what it means to stop or rest, even vacation isn't that relaxing. And then you come back from your vacation and you need a vacation from your vacation. It's crazy. But what I'm getting at is this. What are we really modeling to our children by the pace that we are instituting in our homes? I think another reason is that we just struggle to slow down because no one else around us slows down. As I reflect on the Seventh-day Adventist in Loma Linda, you know, it's, it sounds like a kind of refreshing in some ways. You're like, well, everybody stops. So when everybody's stopping, it makes it easy to stop, or easier at least, But it's hard to swim against the current when everyone around you and even your peers around you, your your lifestyle maybe doesn't reflect their lifestyle. And we're always trying to kind of keep up with one another or stay aligned with one another. But I think another reason we're often busy and, and struggle to slow down is because we are uncomfortable with silence. We're uncomfortable with downtime or idle time. We may like it at first, right? When the pandemic hit, everybody appreciated the first couple of weeks because it was a forced stop for everybody and everybody had a chance to exhale. And about the third week in, everybody starts getting stir crazy, like, okay, I don't know how to do this very long. I got to get going. I got to get something to do. I need to get after it. It's hard for us to stop. And so when you have a spare moment or when you have a day of downtime in your schedule, The question is, what do you do when you have these moments? What do you do when you have this kind of, this maybe this, even in, it doesn't have to be your Sabbath day, what do you do with idle time? How do you spend it? Archbishop Temple says this, your religion is what you do with your solitude or with your idle time. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, what you think about when you have nothing to think about is a picture of one's heart. Blaise Pascal said it this way. He says, I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Hence it comes that men so much love noise and stir. Hence it comes that the prison is so horrible a punishment. Hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. The fact is, we struggle to stay silent. We, we, we are uncomfortable with idle time. And so what do we oftentimes do in the 21st century Western context with our idle time? And what do we see everybody walking around doing? Oops, sorry. You know, We love our smartphones, right? I told you last week we're going to kind of touch on this. A rule of life in regards to our digital technology. I'll just say this right up front. I'm grateful for the advancements of technology. The fact that we're live streaming right now, the fact that we have, we we rely on it so much that we're almost just used to it as if it's just kind of an expectation. I love the, uh, that we can send and receive messages that, um, that I can, if technology is functioning as it ought to, that we can like literally video chat on someone halfway around the world at literally the tap of my thumb. I mean, it's incredible what is available to us. And there are many good things 
uh, about technology and its advancement that we have much to benefit from. But there is uh, one picture, and I've showed this a long time ago, but I've always valued it. In fact, I look at it often enough just to kind of as a way of reminder. But um, does that picture come up? Did you? Oh, you don't have it. Bummer. You weren't able to pull it up? It's okay. There's a picture. I'll just describe it for you. Johnny Depp is coming out, you know, it's like a red carpet appearance. The Boston Globe put this thing out, and, uh, and everybody obviously is just in this kind of like riled up, frantic panic. This is amazing! And, and guess what you see? You see all these people, their phones out like this, right? They're viewing the world through their phone, right? Everybody's looking, viewing the world through the screen. And if you look closely enough, you actually see this, this little old lady with pink glasses, and she's just got her hands crossed, and she's just smiling, and she's just taking it all in. She doesn't have a phone in her hands. She's just taking it all in. And everybody else is kind of like doing this number, kind of, because of course we've got to get our selfies, and we've got to get like, then we've got to post it on social media, because when we post it on social media, everybody's going to think our life is amazing, because look what I got to see, and you're so impressed, and you want to be like me, and she's just taking it all in, just, just enjoying it for what it is. The point I'm getting at is it's easy to try and capture a moment instead of enjoying the moment for what it is. And sometimes our technology can work against us, not necessarily for us. And when it, especially when it comes to a smartphone device. By the way, Jesse Salgado, could you just hang up, pull up your phone and say, he's got a, what we call a dumb phone now. It's pretty awesome. It only makes calls and receives texts. It's crazy. I know. Right? I mean, it's amazing. It's like you can call on it and you can text on it. It's awesome. <laughs> he showed it to me just the other day. I was like, I'm like, wow, that is so cool. And it's like this big, you know, and it feels like a little kind of a candy bar or something in there and stuff like that. It's, it's awesome. Now, granted, your smartphones and your iPhones and stuff, are, I mean, those are also awesome in their own way, but you have, to, you have to rule your technology or your technology will rule you. And so in regards to social media, we need to understand like the, the, the dangers or even this, the slippery slope, again, seemingly innocent, but the slippery slope of not handling your social media and your digital technology to the glory of God. Did you know, and I got this uh, from a recent podcast I was listening to again, that the, the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day and is on their phone for two and a half hours a day. For millennials, it's literally double that. You are on your phone for five and a half hours a day. John Mark Comer says this. He said, the smartphone has rewired our ability to have sustained attention. It used to be that we were able to have a long attention, but because of technology, it has reduced our sustained attention to eight seconds on average. And to make it really, really interesting, they say a goldfish has a nine-second sustained <laughs> attention span. So... There's that. Goldfish. 
Comer goes on to say that social media tycoons admit that social media is designed and engineered for distraction and addiction because that is where the money is at. It's, it's called attention control or attention economy. And so instead of letting our minds wander and just process various experiences of our day and interactions that we've had, we eliminate the downtime by nonstop information. Nonstop, instead of letting our mind just process and organize that information. And of course, sometimes the motivation, if we're honest with ourselves, is we like the likes. We like the dopamine release that we get when we post something and, and people like it or at least view it uh, or even at least comment on it even if they don't like it, you know, because we feel some sort of sense of validation when it comes. We crave immediate approval and affirmation. Donna Frieda says this in her work called The Happiness Effect. She says this, people are used to do things and then post them and the approval you gain from whatever you were putting out there was a byproduct of the actual activity. But now, the anticipated approval is what's driving the behavior or the activity. In other words, it's not about, I love this activity and I would do it regardless of you knowing it or not, but now we do it only for the sake of you being aware that I'm doing it. And then we, sense that we, we, we have a sense of validation, at least so we think. Now, please... Please, please don't think this. Aaron's anti-smartphone. I have one right there. I'm not anti-smartphone. I'm not anti-social media, though I don't love social media personally as much. Um, I think social media can be of great good. I love the fact that my my brother-in-law, he's creating a social media app, a kingdom app, so that people can encourage one another and pray for one another and, 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 and have kingdom conversation with one another. So he's using it for good. It's kind of what John Piper says, you know, his, regardless of the technology coming out, there's a way to glorify God in it, even though there's many ways to serve ourselves in it. So let me give you a couple tips not because they're unique to me, but because I've been doing some reading on this about our social media or smartphone usage. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 10. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, what we need as people When I talk about we need to rule our technology, not let our technology rule us, we need a rule of life so that we manage these incredibly powerful tools for the glory of God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about when I think about a rule of life. Justin Early writes this in his book called The Common Rule. He says this, uh, he encourages this, make sure, for example, that the Bible becomes, that comes before your phone. Abby and I have adopted this. The Bible comes before a phone. In other words, we don't turn on our phones. In fact, we leave them in the other room until, I'm not saying we're perfect at this, but we leave in the other room until we've had our time with the Lord. And then we engage it, because guess what? The moment you, it craves your attention. And there's all kinds of ways, and I turn off most, almost all my notifications, and yet there's still things that come at you, Right? That's another rule of life. You could turn off all your notifications so that you, when you look at your phone, it's when you have intentionally planned to, to, to look at it and to respond to it versus it being kind of Pavlov's dog, right? The notification comes in and you're like, oh, I have to stop whatever thing. 
Oh, man, I'm going to get off topic here. (laughs) Can I give another just tip? Don't look at your phone or your watch in the middle of a conversation. I know we could all probably, we've done it as well as been on the receiving end of going like, we're having a conversation with somebody and it's just like, oh, that's nice. (laughs) Continue, what? You know, it's, it's just amazing how like, we don't even think about it. It's, it's unconscious. But we need to be proactive and intentional in it so that we might glorify God in it. And so a couple of questions that we can regard or ask ourselves is this. Does my, so, my use of social media point, point others toward God or toward myself? Does my use of social media serve and build up my audience or serve and build up Christ's church? Does my use of social media and technology imprison me into an unhealthy bondage to this medium? Again, the phone is amoral. What happens in our heart and how we use it is the difference between a God-glorifying practice and one that can enslave us to attention economy. I'll leave it at that. There are some great resources out there for how to develop a rule of life, especially in regards to your technology. I highly recommend it. Again, it's going to be look different for everybody. What works for one person isn't necessary for another person. What works for you so that you might be able to honestly say, yes, I'm able to listen to God faithfully and clearly because I am not a slave to this device, but this device is merely a tool to glorify my heavenly Father. So I want to ask one more question and give you some practical tips of how we can implement Sabbath in our regular schedule. Um, Let me just say this right up front. Pursue those activities that restore you and avoid those activities that deplete you. Pursue those activities that restore you and avoid those activities that deplete you. I think one uh, Jewish rabbi said it this way. He says, if you work with your mind, then Sabbath with your hands. And if you work with your hands, then Sabbath with your mind. Again, the Sabbath day is a day that does not look like the other six days. So here's a few tips to consider as you process your, with your spouse or with a friend of how to implement Sabbath rest in your week. First of all, let me just say this, and I know I'll probably get some disagreements, maybe from here, but others as well. The way my conviction is on this is that any day can be a Sabbath day. Yes, traditionally, Sunday is traditionally a Sabbath day. Even from Saturday to Sunday, the first church, they, they changed from Saturday to Sunday to kind of celebrate Resurrection Day. It's a little different than Sabbath day, but they kind of change their Sabbath day to Resurrection Day. Of course, Resurrection Day for me is not a very uh, restful day. So you might know, think like, well, Aaron, you only work an hour and a half all week long. I mean, you just literally do nothing. Sundays among many days, but definitely Sundays are not relaxing. They're good days, but they're not, I don't, I don't view them as a day of rest for me. So I have to pick a different day. And I would, I, I, my biblical justification for that is in Romans 15, 14, 5, when Paul says, says this, some think one day as more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. 
The point is this, not that we all pick the same day, though it does make it kind of helpful at times, but that we pick a day in which we are stopping so that we might be restored and renewed in Christ. And and just so you know, because I'm just going to be completely transparent with you, I'm an outgoing introvert, (laughs) which means I get depleted. Don't take this the wrong way. I get depleted by interaction. I love the interaction, but I, re, I, I restore by literally like being alone. I love taking a hike by myself. <laughs> Not because I don't like you or love you, because, because it's just like, like, that's how I am restored. Not all of you are like that. Some of you are like, I can be around people all day, every day, it doesn't matter. That is awesome. I can't. And so I need, I'm like, less is more on my Sabbath day. And here's another thing about me. I know for my own personal Sabbath I have to be, un, in a sense, unstructured, not intentional. I'm not saying I'm not intentional, but I have to not be obligated because all week long I'm obligated and, and looking at my calendar and what are the commitments that I need to meet. And so guess what a Sabbath is for me? Abby's like, let's go do all these things. I'm like, I just want to like maybe do one thing or nothing. I don't know. I just don't want to have to commit to anything right now. I just want to be still. And how I go about my digital technology Though, I, again, I am not, have not arrived by any stretch of the word, but I am striving after this. On my Sabbath day, which is Friday, by the way, it's a family day. The, the kids don't even do school that day. And so it's kind of a day which we kind of just get to be together. And I know Katie would probably push back on this, so I can't, I gotta be honest. The goal is that I pretty much keep the phone in the back room. I know, it's the goal. Not always the practice, Katie. <laughs> it's tough having kids in here that are going to call you out. So they're like, I don't know, that's not necessarily. Yeah, so again, these are what we're striving after, not necessarily what I've, uh, I'm perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in all this. So, um, but let me just say this. Remember that Sabbath is a time to stop, reset, and rest. Rest does not mean the absence of activity. It means the intentional break from anything that is depleting to your body and your soul. In other words, you can, it doesn't mean that you can't do projects, though some of you shouldn't do projects. Some of you are busybodies because you always have to be doing something. That's why you should probably not do something on your Sabbath. But some of you are like, hey, you know what? I've been sitting in front of a computer screen all week. I need to mow the lawn. I need to do something with my hands, something that's kind of very different. That could be very restorative for you. I know some of you probably hate the lawn, but I actually like jumping on the lawnmower and, and riding around on thing, putting the noise-canceling earphones on, because guess what? It is a simple, mindless task. It's restful and restorative for me. And guess what? Being in the ministry, you don't get to always see a lot of fruit from your labor. And so guess what? You mow a lawn, and two hours later, you're like, man, that looks really nice. We started it and completed it. Whereas in ministry, we start and it has this perpetual ray of never-ending uncompletedness. And so I, I like to mow the lawn. What is it for you? Um, let me just say this. I'm just going to jump ahead here. Ask yourself this. What activity is depleting for me and what activity is restorative for me? And in the end, can I just say this? In the end, it's not just about how I plan my Sabbath out, though you need a plan. It does take structured and proactiveness. What does God want you to do? 
How is God leading you to observe the Sabbath day? You see, especially in Western contexts, but it's true of all people, I think, we are in the habit without even realizing it that I just want to like plan my day the way I deem fit. But I think as followers of Jesus, we are invited into a relationship and we're saying, where we say, Jesus, what do you want for my day? How do you want to restore me? How do you want to re- replenish my soul? It could almost look different from Sabbath to Sabbath. But the question is, are we asking? Not as we oftentimes do, Lord, make this wish list come true, but asking, Lord, how is it that you want me to observe this day that you've called holy? Real quickly, guard this day and protect the time that you designate as your Sabbath day. It does take preparation. If you don't, if you don't make a plan, then it won't happen. So this isn't a planned list day. This is just an intentional day in which you're preparing for it. And it does take some diligence and and preemptive thought in order to pursue it effectively. Fourth, be realistic about the day. (laughs) Don't beat yourself up. You're like, well, that was a total wash. That didn't work. You know what? God is a gracious God. It's an invitation. The Sabbath was made for you so that by it you might be restored in him. And here's maybe another thing. Just talk about it with one another. Talk about it. What are you doing to, do, to, to observe Sabbath? Or, and we can help one another in our effort in pursuing a Sabbath. Let me, let me close with this. Matthew Sleeth, I think, appropriately summarizes this whole concept of Sabbath when he says this. Some books about Sabbath extol the day's healing powers And there are those who tout its uh, refreshing virtues, and that's true. The Sabbath was meant to restore and renew the souls. But Sabbath-keeping is nothing less than grabbing on the robe of the maker of the universe. The Sabbath balances the active parts of life with the holy parts of life. As I shared last week, and I'll remind you again from Matthew 11, In a world of 24-7, constant change, Jesus says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy with burden, and I will give you rest. That word for rest is Sabbath. And I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus is Sabbath, and Sabbath is resting in him. I would love to take just a few minutes right now before we observe the Lord's Supper together just to, take, just to quiet our hearts. Perhaps God is speaking to you in some way, in some specific way. Perhaps there's a thought that you're like, man, I need to chew on that with the Lord. And so I just want us to quiet our hearts. The worship team's going to come on up right now. We'll have a closing song in just a little bit. But just take a moment to just bow your heads if you need to, to avoid distraction. Close your eyes if that's helpful. But let's, let us be still before the Lord and know that he is God. God.